I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This far we read from God's word. Patrick Henry was one of the founding fathers of our country. He lived from 1736 to 1799. He was the governor of Virginia. He's famous for the statement, give me liberty or give me death, but that's not the quote I want to consider tonight. Rather, it's his quote about spiritual riches, since that's our topic. On the day that he signed his last will and testament, uh, testament, he said this, I've now disposed of all my property to my family. There's one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, and I had not given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. We share this perspective as Christians about how rich we are in Christ and how poor those are who are without him. It brings us to the main point of this message in your bulletin. You'll find this statement, we are all blessed to be called by Christ and we praise God for each other's rich and various gifts. First in verses four and five, we'll see praising God for the gifts given to the church. Verses six and seven, praising God that the church doesn't lack any gift. And third, verses 8 and 9, praising God for future blessings all the way to the end. For the form of the writing of the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul followed the standard form of letters of his day. Specifically, at the start of the letter, he followed the customary form in four ways by writing down these four things. Who's writing the letter? The person or persons to whom the letter is addressed. A greeting and then a statement of thanks, usually in those days given to a false Greek god. So in the first three verses, Paul gave those first three. He gave his own name as the author. Uh, the group to whom the letter was addressed was the church in Corinth, and his greeting was, Grace to you in peace, in verse 3. Now when we get to verse 4, our text, Paul followed the fourth customary form of official correspondence by giving a statement of thanks. However, rather than thanking some false Greek god, which Paul didn't believe in, he took this opportunity to testify of his belief in the one true and living God when Paul wrote, I give thanks to my God, in contrast to all the other Greek gods and all the other letters. Other letter writers may have written their false Greek gods out of an empty formality of thanks, but for Paul, the giving of thanks here was actually heartfelt. He really did give thanks to his God. And give thanks to his God for what? Do you notice it in verse 4? For you. Give thanks to God always for you. And who's that? It's, it's the believers in Corinth, in the church in Corinth. Why? He lists that out in verse 4, because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ. Now, now wait just a minute. And we, we're following this on down through very nicely, how Paul is giving thanks for the church in Corinth, and it all sounds churchy and nice. I hope I didn't lose you so far. Please remember that this letter from Paul is not to the wonderful, unified, and joyful church over in the city of Philippi. This is not Philippians. This is the church in Corinth. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, it was a troubled church, thus the need for the letter at all. And how can he start by saying, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus? Is this for real? How can this be that he's thankful for the church in Corinth? 
It's a crucial passage for our understanding of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. So I want to take a moment on this. We have to start with this. We have to remember this. This is being thankful for the grace of God in one another. I seek to illustrate, and I run a risk. I really never use a Packers illustration, and people who are deep into the Packers are probably watching the game right now. So this is helpful to have this illustration, though, I believe. In July of 1961... Vince Lombardi kicked off the first day of training camp for his 38 players on the Green Bay Packers football team. The prior season had ended in a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after the Packers blew a lead in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game in 1961. Well, when the Packers players came in to start training camp the next season in July, they expected Coach Lombardi to immediately begin where they left off, expecting them to remember all their plays and be ready to work hard to advance their game. Perhaps the coach would teach them some new and fancy ways to win the championship this time around in their new season. However, when the team sat down and they began, Coach Lombardi held up a football, and you probably heard this one. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. He was making a point. The point is that we have to start with the basics. If we're going to rebuild a winning football team, we have to start with the basics. And the phrase has become so famous, the story around it is famous, because he was saying we have to go back to the fundamentals. He started with them on the first page of their playbooks. They relearned how to block, how to tackle, how to throw, how to catch. It was clearly not what they were expecting as experienced players who are at the top of their game. They play for the NFL after all. But the hyper-focus then on the fundamentals worked. It allowed the Packers to win the 1962 NFL championship 37 to zip against the New York Giants. And Vince Lombardi went on to win five NFL championship games in seven years. And he never coached a team with a losing season after that. And he never lost a playoff game again after that. Why do I tell that illustration? Because Paul here is seeing the grace of God in the church in Corinth. If you see the church in Corinth and all you see is troubles, you're not seeing correctly. You've got to go back to the fundamentals, back to the basics of what is happening in Corinth. What is happening in the church in Corinth? The city, admittedly, was filled with the sexually immoral idolaters, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers, which is, all, I guess, an old-fashioned word for scammers. But from that city, Paul noticed what God did, and Paul celebrated it appropriately. Paul spelled it out later in chapter 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11. So after Paul had taught these things, Paul left. And when he was going to other cities in his missionary journeys, the church in Corinth forgot these fundamentals. So in this letter, right after his formal opening greeting, he writes them the equivalent of the speech that says, Gentlemen, this is a football. He starts off by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ. What he's saying is, if we've forgotten this, we can't get any farther. This is a basic, basic fundamental about a church. A lesson for a Christian in any age, no matter how much we disagree or are inconvenienced by or are disappointed by Christians, with poor attitudes, bad actions, irresponsible errors, 
we must still genuinely give thanks to God for their true faith in Jesus Christ. At the base of it all, we're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. How long did Coach Lombardi use the fundamentals? Always. He never left the fundamentals. How long did Paul give thanks? Few weeks, few months, three chapters into the letter. Verse 4 says, Always, I give thanks to my God always for you. If it's a fundamental, then it's a fundamental always. We have to remember these basic truths. Why? Verse 4, because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Because God's grace is permanent as a gift to any believer. When do we stop giving thanks to God for a changed life? It's a person who could be out there chasing idolatry. When do we give, stop giving thanks to God for the evidence of his grace still in hearts and lives? The, the people who used to be stuck in destructive ways that lead to death are now embedded in constructive ways that lead to life. We keep giving thanks to God for that, for his salvation, his redemption. When is it appropriate to ever stop giving thanks to God for changed lives? They had come from the wicked life to the good life. These people about whom he's writing, to whom he's writing, and from worshiping false gods to worshiping the one true God. How could Paul tell? It was seen in the life of the church. Look at the evidences of the grace of God. He next lists out here in verse 5 that in every way you were enriched in Christ Jesus in all speech and in all knowledge. That didn't mean that they had become perfect people. Oh, no. That's the whole reason for the letter, to straighten them out. But what it meant was that in comparison to the wicked ways of speaking and happening all across the rest of the city of Corinth, these believers in the church in Corinth were enriched in their speaking. They were enriched in their knowledge. So in contrast to the lack of spiritual knowledge of their neighbors, the Christians in Corinth had true spiritual knowledge of the one true God. Better than that, they themselves knew God. They could speak about God to other people as people who knew God. They met God. They testify about God to others. They teach about God to others. God is their Father, as Paul wrote in verse 3. Christ is their Lord, as Paul wrote in verse 3. They were confessing Christ to pagans in Corinth, and the light of God was shining through them. Praise God for the gifts given to the church. It brings us to our second point, verses 6 and 7. Praise God that the church does not lack any gift. The same gospel of grace that Paul had preached when Paul was in the city of Corinth is now spreading around the city of Corinth through believers. God had placed the believers on a firm foundation in Christ. Verse 6, he explained how they were enriched. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. He's saying what I used to teach when I was there about Christ is confirmed in how you are still believing. Paul had known Christ ever since Paul's own personal conversion The same was true for those believers in Corinth. They knew Christ. They were not just speaking things that Paul told them to speak. They were speaking what they themselves had come to know about Jesus and were therefore sharing what they believed in firsthand knowledge. Their lives were changed by Jesus. They were themselves confirming that to Corinth, what Paul had previously preached about Christ in Corinth. After Paul left, the testimony of Jesus had not stopped. It continued in their very lives. They were living testimonials of what Christ can do to transform a life. He had enriched the Corinthian believers, and now they're expressing in Corinth what they themselves knew and believed about Christ. The light had shone in their hearts. They now had themselves become lights shining through a dark city. 
And Paul is genuinely thankful, actually rejoicing because of the grace of God seen in their lives. And then into verse 7, Paul observed that the church in Sin City did not fall behind other churches. Take, for example, the church to Galatia, or the letter of Galatians, or the, the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians. The church in Corinth isn't behind them. The church in Corinth is equally equipped to testify as churches elsewhere were equipped to testify. Listen to how Paul started this concept in verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in Christ, And now listen to how Paul continued that statement in verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Enriched in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge, not lacking, not missing their abilities, their knowledge, their faith, their speaking gifts in the church in Corinth. They had the same spiritual gear, if you will, the the same spiritual equipment with which God had furnished other churches in other areas such as Galatia and Thessalonica. They had it all in Corinth. In fact, Paul seemed to be suggesting through a simple understatement here in verse 7 that the church in Corinth had an abundance of speaking gifts. Paul's making this simple point. Regarding speaking gifts, Corinth lacked nothing. Regarding any sort of spiritual gifts for ministry, Corinth lacked nothing. They had Every spiritual tool needed for testifying and building the church. Paul meant it. He's thankful for it. So the question to us, the lesson to us, is what does every church need to be doing with the range of spiritual gifts that God gives in our needy world? The answer is to be engaging those spiritual gifts, to testify to the world and actively wait for the coming of Jesus and his return. We thank God for every, every gospel church on the mission field, every gospel church in our country. Faithful ministry of God's word will sustain us and faithful witnessing will draw other uh, people, unbelievers in as we wait for Jesus' return. And once more, now once he he mentions in verse 7 the future return of Christ, he's prompted to write yet more about the return of Christ in the future. It brings us to our third point, verses 8 and 9. Praise God for future blessings all the way to the end. Verse 8, Paul wrote another fundamental or bedrock truth that it was Jesus who sustained them. It was Christ who upheld them to the end. Only because of their Lord did they anticipate being found guiltless on the final day, the day of judgment, the end of the world, the day when Jesus returns. As Paul wrote it here in verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day of Christ, they'll be guiltless in him by virtue of his death and resurrection. It was Christ who would vindicate them on that day, despite their many sins, all because of the gospel of Christ. Notice verse 8. It's Jesus who will sustain you to the end. And we need to make sure we're clear on this. We're studying a blessing that's in the future, yet a blessing that's future that enriches us now while we wait for it. We know how the whole world ends. The future, how it all ends, what will happen next. We understand the last chapter of world history. And we live now in times that are hard and in a broken world, and we remain hopeful as people who look to the future and know what will happen, and we're blessed now because of it. You see how verse 8 does not reference only the future. Verse 8 also references today. Today, Christ will sustain us. In fact, the word sustain here in verse 8 has the literal meaning of laying a foundation underneath us. So the same foundation that's actively and presently underneath us, upholding us today, is the same foundation we are confident will be actively upholding us tomorrow. 
And Christ and his foundation underneath us will sustain us both today and tomorrow and all the days into the future. So verse 8, Paul says something powerful, so encompassing, it describes a very enriched life indeed. We have the true outlook that we will certainly be sustained by Christ Jesus to the end of our lives or to the end of the world. We join Paul in giving thanks to God for that truth and outlook for all other believers. We can thank God that all his people are standing in these rich blessings. There's many temptations in a sinful society around the believers in the church in Corinth. There's many temptations for us in a sinful society. There's numerous ways to fall away from our walk with God. Walking through this world is like walking through a spiritual minefield of explosions and traps. When Christians get caught up in the behaviors of the world, we're called to holiness, and so any sinful behavior quickly becomes a problem. If we find sin in ourselves or sin in others, what are we supposed to do? We keep coming back to grace, God's grace. We remind ourselves and remind other believers in a sinful society there's a gospel of grace and there's the gift of forgiveness and eternal life found only in Jesus. We are Christians. Have we fallen into sin? What would Paul write a letter to remind us then if we were caught up in sin? He would start by reminding us of the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for our sins fully with his own life as the sacrifice and then rose again. The result is that God's forgiveness and love is ours now. It's ours tomorrow, ours the next day, and will be ours all the way into the future. More than a few Corinthians thinking about how they had sinned and thinking of their past guilt might be wondering as they read these words, Paul, are you sure? Is that really how it works, Paul? Yes, and and so Paul would need to teach them how to become that sure. On what basis could they take this announcement about guiltlessness on the day of the Lord, as he just wrote, and be consoled by it? How could they be convinced by what Paul was saying? After all that we've done, do you know the nasty stuff that we've done? How can we have the certainty that you have, Paul? So then he writes verse 9. To reinforce the good news to sinners who may be struggling to actually believe the gospel is this good. Struggling to actually believe that God's gifts are so rich that believers who fell back into sinning can get forgiveness again. Believers who have succumbed to temptation need to hear again the very same gospel and the basis of the gospel for our own souls. So here's verse 9, ending a beautiful paragraph by providing that solid basis. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's another fundamental, a fundamental needed to straighten out any church that's forgetful. God is faithful. Start with that. God is faithful. That's a fundamental. Like, gentlemen, this is the football. Ladies and gentlemen, God is faithful. That's a fundamental. Is your forgiveness based on your own faithfulness? That would be works, not grace. Grace says that your forgiveness is not based on you being faithful enough But your forgiveness rather is based on God being faithful. God is faithful. That's why he wrote this so clearly. God is faithful. You say you were unfaithful? Yes, that's true. You were unfaithful. You messed up. But that's not the defining truth about you. The defining truth about you is God is faithful even when we are not. He will not let us go. We failed God? Yes. You could almost say No big deal, because he has not failed us. We must not let the fact that we failed God 
be the one thing that dominates and controls us. Instead, we must let the fact that controls us, the one dominating fact that encourages us is this. God is faithful, which means that God will never fail us, though we have indeed failed him. I think this is really necessary for Christians to think through. How do you deal with your sin, and then how do you deal with guilt feelings after the sin? That's what he's after here. How do we process who we are and how we are walking with God in the fellowship of Jesus Christ? I seek to illustrate this. In 1881, before they had the the kind of hygiene stuff we do, I recently had surgery on my hand last year, and I was amazed how much hygiene they put me through. I had to take special soap and have a whole shower with it, and all they're going to do is work on my hand. The hygiene stuff we're into now was not the case in 1881, okay? He was shot, President Garfield, at a train station in Washington, D.C. The bullet lodged behind his pancreas. The doctors couldn't find it. At the scene, the doctor probed the wound with his unwashed little finger, trying to find the bullet. Couldn't find it, so he tried a silver-tipped probe. Still couldn't find the bullet. They transported President Garfield back to the White House. He's now growing very weak. Teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet, probing the wound over and over. In desperation, they asked Alexander Graham Bell, you know, the one developing later the telephone, if he could create a metal detector to find the bullet in the president's body, which he did, but it's a complicated story. They didn't allow him to actually search properly. He failed to find the bullet. The president hung on through July, then August, but in September he finally died. Not from the bullet wound, from the infection. I'm probing around in there, which the doctors thought would help the man, eventually killed the man. And so it is with people, Christians who dwell too long on the sin and refuse to release it to God, are messing around in a way that's harmful to your spiritual life and can be worse than the sin itself. It's not the sin that brings us down, because sin can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. It's our continual probing around in the wounds of the sins that we do for ourselves that brings us down, gets us confused, distances us from God. We need to keep applying God's healing grace and gain strength. God will never fail us, though we have failed him. God is faithful, tell yourself. Don't keep telling yourself, I messed up. Tell yourself, God is faithful. He has not messed up. He will never leave me, never forsake me. And so Paul writes here in verse 9 that it was God the Father, our Father, who called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus. That God the Father didn't merely give us the riches of forgiveness and then make us stand in a corner in shame and punishment. God our Father doesn't shame us. He never tells us, you better not make a sound, just be glad I let you in here at all. That's never the way that believers are treated by God our Father. It's not biblical at all. Our riches are so much richer than that. Look at the end of verse 9. How it was that God our Father did the opposite of having us stand in a corner in shame. And as it were, motioned to us who put ourselves in the corner and called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Come right out into the middle of the party where Jesus is and hang around Jesus. Stop being in the corner. 
Because you're in the fellowship of his son, the father's son, Jesus. God, our father, doesn't shame us. He doesn't give us a begrudging forgiveness. He doesn't allow us to shame ourselves. He doesn't allow us to consign ourselves into a corner and an act of self-shaming and residual guilt. God, our Father, does not allow someone else to shame us and to make us feel less than rich in Christ. Those are false accusations. They might as well come from the devil. God, our Father, doesn't allow the devil to keep whispering to us and suggesting us that we won't deserve the riches of Christ. We have ears to hear Christ in his voice alone. Jesus died and rose again not just to pay our spiritual debts, but to give us spiritual riches. We don't break even. It's not like I had debts and they were paid off and now I'm just broke. No, we're rich in Christ. Spiritual riches are downloaded to our accounts in full measure. God the Father sees to it. And what have we seen? We're blessed to be called by Christ and praise God for each other's rich and varied gifts. Praise God for the gifts given to the church. Praise God that the church doesn't lack any gift. Praise God for future blessings all the way to the end. And the concluding application is one and simple. We're enriched by the love of God our Father. God sees us moving toward the corner, head down, shame starting to control us. The Holy Spirit calls to our hearts. What is that call? It's the call of the fellowship of the gospel. Come out of that guilt cloud. Come out of that corner. You don't belong in there. Shake off your shame, which is not appropriate here. Come right out into the corner, into the center where the people of Jesus are centered around him. Hold your head up high and do so not because of your own performance, rather because of the rich gift of grace eagerly and lovingly given to us with the insistence on the part of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you feel spiritually rich. We now wear the righteous robe of Christ's perfect performance. We are rich. We we appear as though we are children of God because we're seen as regal through Christ's performance. We are royalty. We belong to the family of the king. There's no second-class members of the family of God, our Father says. We're in fellowship with Jesus, he insists. We belong here in the warm embrace of the people of the Son of God. This is home in his worship and in his presence. God is our Father. Christ is our Lord and shepherd. We can echo Paul and say, my God, like he said in verse 4. We can echo Paul and say, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God given to me in Christ Jesus, to you in Christ Jesus. We can together rejoice and be filled with hope, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to take us home. We can relax because it's all by grace anyway. Because Christ will sustain us until that fine and final day. We are enriched in every way. That's why I put the title out there of the sermon. We're enriched in every way. Later, in our study of 1 Corinthians, we get that far, and Paul will directly be confronting our sins, the sins of churches, and we'll feel the same conviction. Please don't forget. Let us never forget the orienting passage here. This must be dominant the truth about the love of God for us. It's unshakable. It's our foundation. It's our basics, the fundamentals. Later we can talk about how much work needs to be done to correct everything. But first, we remember what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, how we're enriched in every way. In fact, in our closing hymn, A Christmas Carol, again, verse 3, 
speaks of God's love. Listen to this. Thou who art loved beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou would have us be. Thou who art loved beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Father, help us to absorb and to retain how much your love has enriched us in every way.